0: Hello and welcome to Fast Pass the Past, the theme park history podcast, episode 9. I'm your host, Austin Carroll. I'm a history nerd, a former Disneyland cast member, and a current annual pass holder at both Disneyland and Universal Studios Hollywood. Today we are going back to our Lost Lands of Disneyland series. Our last one was Discovery Bay, so if you haven't listed that one first, I would recommend it. Today we are talking about something that I really thought was just going to be kind of a footnote to our Discovery Bay episode, but actually, in further research, became an episode of its own. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and especially for listening to our Lost Land series. I hope you enjoy learning about lands that may have only briefly existed or never existed at all. I really enjoy talking about it. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the Disneyland archives and look at another lost land of Disneyland. In the second part of our Lost Land series, we'll be talking about Holiday Land the short-lived land of Disneyland that was never even truly open to the general public, clocking in at nine acres of open space where one could drink beer, yes, beer, play softball, throw horseshoes, and we'll take a gander at this one seemingly strange addition to Walt's original Magic Kingdom. It is a land that is not well-remembered, if remembered at all. In fact, I only knew about it because of a strange monument to it backstage where it once stood it's right behind Adventureland near the Indiana Jones kind of attraction, and it's a single candy cane striped pole. I always thought that was a little weird. So now I know the backstory. So without further ado, let's take a look into the lost land that once sort of graced the pages of a theme park map, Holiday Land. Before we head for the park, let's look in on Holidayland. Holiday Land <laughs> This big new addition to Disneyland is an ideal gathering place for organizations visiting the park. Now let us journey to another lost land of Disneyland, Holiday Land. And no, I know what you're thinking. This isn't the original American theme park we debated on in our first podcast, this was actually a land at Disneyland. It was little known, rarely used, and a mostly forgotten parcel of grass, sand, and playground equipment. The holiday land that people know, if they know any version at all, is the one most commonly pictured nine acres of open event space. It existed from 1957 to 1961 and was situated just beyond the old Indian village, think present day Haunted Mansion and all nine acres could be rented out for special groups and events. For many listeners, Holiday Land appears very much out of step with the cultural identity of Disneyland. But you have to remember, in the park's early years, before Disneyland's personality had solidified as a place of wonder and enchantment and magic, we was still looking to traditional amusement parks for inspiration and guidance. You can find more evidence of this in our podcast about Knott's Berry Farm, which is episode one. However, some brief examples of his use of traditional amusement park fare is the Frontierland shooting gallery, the pack mules in Frontierland, and even Dumbo Flying Elephant's ride system. Likewise, back in the 1950s, most regional amusement parks had an event area. These event areas were profitable because they brought large groups into the park. You have to realize this was an era of blue-collar appreciation Large day-outs were organized for families of local corporations. For instance, the area could be reserved for, say, a trade union. Then the trade union sold tickets to the event, and in some cases, also to the park. Anyone that has ever worked in sales knows that group sales go a long way to helping the bottom line. Although Disney has traditioned away from large-scale events into more wedding-focused corporate buyouts of the park, still happen occasionally by Google and the like. Some attraction hosts, myself included, may still dream of the day when these events take place away from the confines of Fantasyland and Tomorrowland. Back then, without a wealth of event space and without an owned and operated hotel, I'm sure we'll talk about the Disneyland Hotel's history in another podcast, however it was not owned by Disney until relatively recently, if you didn't know, Holidayland became the designated event space for that four-year period. However, it wasn't initially envisioned to be just that. The original concept for Holiday Land was a turn-of-the-century town park, complete with picnic areas, horseshoe pits, a baseball diamond, and maybe even an open field where a circus could perform. The park would have been located on the other side of the proposed theme park, roughly where the Matterhorn stands today. In the 1953 proposal, the W.E.D. design team described Holiday Land as a beautiful park that guests would enter by way of a covered bridge. And I quote, here, pony drawn surreys and buggies may be rented to trot along a winding country road. Holidayland is a restoration of bygone rural America with its farmhouses, barns, fields, gardens, pastures, and livestock. End quote. Once the location in Anaheim was settled in nineteen fifty four, and it wasn't going to be Burbank like initially proposed, the WED team redesigned Disneyland to meet the available space in Anaheim. The town park concept quickly fell away but a few elements lingered in the 1954 design plans for Disneyland. In this later version, Holiday Land was presented as a picnic and reception area where guests could celebrate children's birthdays and other holidays. This smaller version of Holiday Land, which at times was also called Recreation Land, would have had two purposes. They would be essentially catering spaces that groups could rent out for special events, maybe even for gatherings as small as a family reunion or a special birthday. And that area would also have seasonal decorations, such as a village for Santa and picnic grounds for a traditional 4th of July picnic. This also didn't really come to fruition. In late 1955, four months after Disneyland opened its gates, the name Holidayland was applied to the circus grounds at Disneyland. I suspect some people know that Walt Disney hosted the Mickey Mouse Club Circus at Disneyland from late November 1955 until early January 1956. However, you may not know that the circus was specifically themed to the celebration of Christmas. The show included such unusual yuletide acts as a horse who played the bells of St. Mary on a set of chimes, a choir that sang carols, and the appearance of Santa Claus. So yes, Santa Claus has been there way before the Christmas Fantasy Parade, although it does kind of seem like that parade is older than the park itself. The big top itself was even decked out with a Christmas tree, in all the press materials and in the LA Times, the circus area was called Holiday Land. It wasn't until June of 1957 that Disneyland expanded Holidayland into the nine-acre property it's best known for. It was located, in part, where the large show buildings for pirates and the mansion are located today. If you're familiar with Disneyland's backstage area, you'll recognize the epicenter as including the West Sider Restaurant and nearby the end of the Indiana Jones queue. But what was Holiday Land like? Well, one of the park's restaurant leases, the Red Wagon Inn, served food out in the big candy stripe tent often arranged into a lunch package that included a bottomless mug of beer. Adults had the option of playing baseball, volleyball, joining in on a tug-of-war game, or even throwing horseshoes. Children could enjoy a large playground area with equipment that was fashioned to resemble icons of Disneyland. The covered slides looked just like the wagons in Frontierland. The climbing structure with its wooden drawbridge and spires resembled Sleeping Beauty's castle. To kind of give you an idea, one example event that definitely took place was Dairy Day at Holiday Land. It was basically dairy farmers, live cows, and Disneyland, which equals Dairy Day. Dairy Day also included a beauty contest in which two winners were crowned, I kid you not, the Dairy Princesses. Also on the program, the Hay Contest. Exactly what is a hay contest, I wouldn't know either, except the LA Times that covered this event described it in detail. A hay contest is when two teams, two men each, race to see who can load and unload two tons of baled hay the fastest. Sounds sounds like fun, Disney. Fun, clean, Disneyland fun. <laughs> Another annual event that happened once was uh, the Car Club Day. This event was held just outside Disneyland and appears strangely divorced on the purposeful theming that was constructed inside the park and they actually used Car Club Day I believe they have a picture of it and they used it when they were redesigning Cars Land they're like we've always loved cars that was super weird but they did that we're just in time for the Big Potato Derby they're off and running Uh Oh, number 13 dropped his bit and coming down the stretch is the winner by a potato's eyelash in this contest table manners are left at home It's all good, clean fun. Well, anyway, it's delicious. Under Holiday Land's Big Top, the Musketeers are putting on their own show for moms and dads. And other family fans. From the start, Holiday Land had its problems. Number one was plumbing, which always seems to be a problem in early Disneyland. There weren't enough bathrooms to accommodate those guests that all had that bottomless mug of beer. Drunk guests entered the main areas of Disneyland and spoiled the atmosphere for families on vacation. As Holiday Land was designed primarily for adults, the area sat empty during the work week and was only booked really for weekend events. There was also the expense. Though organizations and companies in the late 1950s could easily round up 5,000 or even 10,000 people for a Holiday Land picnic, the economic recession of 1959 and 1960 proved disastrous for Holidayland and Disney's fledgling catering business. In 1961, Holidayland served its final picnic lunch and bottomless beer. I think that is also the last time that alcohol was served at Disneyland, except for Club 33, of course. In the years that followed, the area remained empty, the grounds largely unattended. It wasn't until the construction of New Orleans Square in the mid-1960s, that the structures in Holiday Land actually disappeared. Part of the area was needed for the Pirate Show building. Another part would be soon be needed to house the creepy creeps of the Haunted Mansion. Yet another would be the temporary Imagineering building. And of course, the West Sider, a cast eatery that's backstage that serves up some delicious milkshakes. However, though Holiday Land never reappeared, for a time in the 1980s, it seemed as if Holiday Land may once again grace the pages of Disneyland maps in a new iteration inspired by Epcot, World Holiday Land. In the 1980s, the concept of Holiday Land was briefly revisited. Even with the massive show structures for pirates and mansion occupying part of the old Holiday Land's real estate, there was still a good chunk of unused land in the old picnic grounds. In fact, there is still a lot of room back there today, although less due to the creation of the Indiana Jones attraction. If you're curious, you can see some of the empty area if you stand in downtown Disney and locate the Indiana Jones show building. It's the one painted with clouds, and then just look to the left, and you'll see that empty space. In the 1980s, as Epcot Center and World Showcase were being constructed in Florida, the Imagineers floated an idea that would resurrect one of the earliest concepts attached to holiday land. They proposed to develop an international village, similar in presentation to the World Showcase at Epcot Center, where festive holiday cultures could be celebrated year-round. The area would be called World Holiday Land. The revamped land would include small squares themed to the architecture of London and Paris, as well as Norway and Germany. The London area will feature a medieval show. The German area would have had Oktoberfest style beer gardens, just like the one in Epcot. Disneyland, even in recent history, wasn't afraid to serve alcohol. I'm not sure how that really, how that rumor really came to be. Anyways, there was a problem with putting a land back there in that you would have to travel from New Orleans Square, which was on stage, through the backstage area, which included the Disneyland Railroad, so you basically have to travel underneath to get back to that area, and you still have to do that today if you're a cast member. So they actually came around this by having a kind of effects-filled tunnel, which would take you underneath the railroad. Given the difficulty of access, it's not a huge shock that these plans never materialized. Even as a cast member currently, you have to take an entrance near the bathrooms in New Orleans Square Walk by the kitchens, down a staircase, and walk through a tunnel to get to that side of the park. You can also walk over the train tracks, given that a train isn't coming. Another proposed Disneyland version of the Hall of Presidents also occupied a backstage area between Main Street and the Space Mountain show building, and that really never happened either. Which is great, as that is now another cast cafeteria with a subway inside called the In-Between. Once these prospective guests made it to the new land, these Disneyland visitors would have found themselves wandering through a postage stamp-sized version of Paris. They would have had the option of dining at a sidewalk cafe or grabbing a snack at a counter service stand. They could have also caught a show in a huge internationally themed venue that was to have seated 3,600 Disneyland guests per show. Then they could merely turn the corner from the Parisian part of this new land to London, where 2,400 guests per hour were supposed to have been able to travel through a medieval-themed attraction. Or, if you were more of a travelogue fan, you could have checked out the internationally-themed Circle Vision 360-degree movie the Imagineers were going to screen in the World Holiday Travel Theater every 20 minutes, Or grab some fish and chips and warm beer in an authentic recreation of an old English pub. After you would move north, and you would enter the Neverland section, where you would encounter the Scandinavian folklore adventure ride, which was to have featured the same mythological creatures and show elements that 13 years later were to entertain guests as they experienced Maelstrom at Epcot's Norway Pavilion. This was recently replaced with Frozen, if you didn't know, which means we could have had a Frozen ride. And I already hear the groans, but I'd be excited. Continuing on that northward track, World Holiday Land visitors would have had the option of experiencing a ski thrill show or enjoying some bratwurst and beer by grabbing a table at this section's Bavarian-themed sit-down restaurant. And if these Disneyland visitors had continued moving to the north, they would have eventually exited World Holidayland and entering Bear County through a brand new tree-lined portal. This would have been around where Splash Mountain's fast pass stands currently. In fact, coupled with this Holiday World expansion, Bear County would have gotten a very different Splash Mountain, tentatively entitled The Moonshine Express which was a family-friendly flume ride that was to have featured three drops, including a 14-foot drop. So, I don't know about you, but I think Holiday World Land sounds pretty cool. But why, then, did it never happen? Well, the answer is sponsorship. The Imagineers had so much trouble lining up sponsors for all of the international pavilions that were initially proposed for Epcot's World Showcase section. They were just tired. They didn't want to do it anymore. They had originally wanted to build pavilions for 31 different countries around the World Showcase Lagoon. By the time Epcot Center opened in October of 1982, the number had dwindled to 9. 31 to 9? was not that great? So basically by then, management team at Walt Disney Productions kind of lost their enthusiasm for the idea of adding a new internationally-themed land to Disneyland, which is kind of a shame since Walt himself tried to make this happen in 1954 with Holidayland, and then again in 1957 with turning the area behind Main Street into International Street, which features a lot of the same concepts. As for why Disney never built that Moonshine Express flume ride, to be honest, by the mid-1970s, the Imagineers were already aware that the Country Bear Jamboree wasn't as popular with Disneyland visitors as it was with the Walt Disney World guests. Which is why, rather than throwing good money after bad and develop another attraction around bear characters that Southern California just didn't know or care about, the Imagineers decided that Disneyland's first flume ride should showcase well-established Disney characters. Which is why Bear Rabbit, Bear Fox, and Br'er Bear entered the equation. Yet, although no one really knows these characters are from anymore, it at least lasted a lot longer than Country Bear Jamboree, which has now been rethemed to a Pooh ride. We'll talk more about the completely modified Bear County and the Indian village it replaced in our third segment of Lost Lands next time on Fast Fast to the Past with the theme park History Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed our series Lost Lands and that short look into what was a relatively strange but really interesting piece of land. I, for one, would die for the chance to drink around the world at Disneyland, and now I'm just going to have to drink and toast to what might have been. Email me at fastpastthepast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. you have any show ideas, disagree with anything I said, or just want to say hi? I love that. You can also message me on Facebook if that's easier. I'd love to read some responses on air. You can find the show notes at www.themeparkhistorypodcast.com. And if you'd be so kind, please leave an iTunes review so I can continue making episodes about the Lost Lands of Disneyland and other theme park history trivia. So without further ado, have a magical day...